Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to take a deeper look at a really important plant that is popping up with more frequency in the news. We're going to be talking about the plant commonly known as Kratom. Its scientific name is Mitragyna speciosa, and it's found in the coffee family or the Rubiaceae family. And I'm really, really excited about today's guest because he is internationally renowned as one of the leading experts um, on the study of this medicinal species. So our guest today is Dr. Christopher McCurdy. He is the Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Professor in the Departments of Medicinal Chemistry and Pharmaceutics. He's also the Frank Duckworth Eminent Scholar Chair in Drug Research and Development at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. He's also the director of the UF Translational Drug Development course. You can see he has got a lot of roles that he's playing in his research enterprise. Chris completed his training as a pharmacist at Ohio Northern University and then um, took on his PhD in medicinal chemistry from the University of Georgia, followed by a three-year postdoc at the University of Minnesota. He began his academic career in 2001 at the University of Mississippi, where he rose to the rank of full professor with tenure. He moved to University of Florida in January of 2017, and he is broadly trained as a pharmaceutical scientist and pharmacist whose research focuses on the design, synthesis, and development of drugs to treat pain, anxiety, and substance use disorders, all really pertinent topics, especially today when so many Americans are combating issues with chronic and acute pain. Um, he's also developed a PET MR imaging diagnostic agent for visualizing the origins of chronic neuropathic pain. Phase one and two human clinical trials are currently underway on this work. In the scholarly domain, he's published more than 190 manuscripts and holds eight patents. So I'm really excited to have you on this show, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing your knowledge. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really exciting. And I consider myself a foodie, uh, a foodie foodie, and obviously a, a connoisseur of pharmacology as well. So really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I think we're, we're a really great match then um, for this show. That's amazing. So the topic I wanted to discuss with you is your groundbreaking research on this medicinal plant called Kratom. This is a plant that originates, I believe, in Asia. What can you tell us about this plant and um, really how its uses in traditional medicine and its area of origin differs from how it's being used today in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a really good and important distinction. So um, Kratom, as it's referred to in Thailand, or Kitom, as it's referred to in Malaysia, uh, are really the epicenters of where this plant originated and, and has been used. And it's been used by laborers, outdoor laborers, field workers, to improve their stamina, increase their energy, um, and sort of help them tolerate that hot, humid, uh, tropical environment and, and work. Um, what they do is uh, actually two very different methods of use. So Malaysians will pick the leaves fresh off of the tree uh, tear those leaves and boil them in water for several hours and then drink what they call juice um, or what we would call tea. Uh, and that's how they consume it. Um, and the, the um, Thai individuals will actually chew the leaves. So they'll pick several leaves fresh off the tree and just chew them as a quid in their mouth. Um, not, not too different from the way we hear about coca leaf chewing or even coca leaf tea. And so there's some parallels, at least in my mind, as to the same sort of use of, of the plant um, because coca leaf is used in a similar way in, in the South American region for stamina and energy and those types of things. So that's how it's consumed. And it's, it's a very different product when it arrives in the Western world. And that's because those leaves are not fresh, right? They've been picked off the tree. Um, they've been dried, they've been ground, um, and that, that leaf material that looks like, um, you know, just powdered material or, or stemmy material, um, 
can change. Just like any leaf that falls off of a tree we see in the fall, um, you know, that can change colors once it's on the ground, change its consistency and texture. Um, all of that's because of chemical reactions that are taking place in oxidations um, and what we call senescence or having that sort of leaf die, right? Um, but the cells are still there and they're still present uh, and actively doing some chemistries. Uh, and so there's a difference and we see different chemical compositions in the product that comes into the United States. And then we see very different usage. Now, the majority of the main chemicals that have been touted as being, um, you know, sort of psychoactive or therapeutically relevant are still intact, but there are additional chemicals that we see with these oxidative products um, that can be there. And then the products are used in the U.S. and in the West and in Europe um, in these powdered leaf, uh, which can be used to brew tea, uh, or they can be consumed as capsules or tablets. Uh, and then oftentimes these are put into um, energy drinks as well. So you can see products available that look like a five-hour energy drink that are essentially uh, kratom extracts or, or, or kratom extracts. Um, uh, and then we have a whole nother level of products in the United States, which are these concentrates and isolates. Uh, and so we are currently starting to try to put a, a, a commentary out there that not all kratom is, is equal. Mm. Um, and that what we see is we're, we're actually moving into almost the the spirits alcohol world where we classify alcohol as a generic term i'm starting to think of kratom or kratom as being a generic term now that describes all the products that are available in the western marketplace um, and so you can see there's there's big differences between just natural leaf material uh, like you would buy as a herb or a spice um, versus something that's very highly concentrated uh, that, that are available and so these, these different products um, are touted for different things and uh, different uses in the United States versus what we know the traditional uses um, back in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So let's talk a bit more about those traditional uses, right? We have, you mentioned that they're, they're brewing them as a decoction where you have a long boiling of the plant material or they're chewing them outright. Um why are people using this plant in in traditional dietary or medical procedures in Thailand, in Laos, in these places where you find the plant? Like what's what what's the rationale or the reason for which they use this plant? So ma mainly, uh, as I said, it's this energy stimulant booster, um, so to speak. Uh, interestingly enough, they will, um, Malaysians in particular, most of the population that's using this is Muslim, and so they don't consume alcohol uh, as part of their religious practice. Um, but on the Friday evenings or Saturday evenings, they may increase their intake of, of the juice. Um, and what happens is, and this is a very paradoxical effect, so you get these stimulant-like effects at lower doses or lower concentrations um, of use. And then as you increase the doses, you start to get this more sedative, relaxing effect. Um, and so they, they talk about it as almost like a social lubricant uh, in, in the evening so that they can relax and unwind from the day. Um, so those are some of the areas. The other areas that it's been traditionally used is really in um, GI disorders, uh, which makes sense into calming down some of the, the intestinal tract. Uh, it's been used for pain, mild and moderate pain, headaches. Um, and also it's been used as a sort of na nature's Viagra um, and as a sort of uh, uh, aphrodisiac, if you will, um, that can improve performance. Uh, so it's claimed, uh, no of any scientific studies that have investigated that yet. Um, and then there is some uh, discussion that uh, the, the material actually is used to help control blood sugar. And so 
there's a lot of claims that are made for the ethno ethnopharmacological use uh, that that really haven't been pursued. Um, and, and one that really got us interested, and as you said, my background is in pain, anxiety, and sort of substance use disorder treatments. Um, we had heard that this was being used as a uh, replacement. They would increase intake of uh, Kratom when they would run out of opium. So a lot of these people were using raw opium as a pain treatment uh, still to this day. And if they were to run out of that, they would increase the use of Kratom uh, to sort of block the withdrawal symptoms that they would have from not having the opium. Well, that got us immediately interested with the opioid crisis and whatnot. And so our area has really focused on this, really looking into the therapeutic possibility of Kratom serving in a opioid withdrawal or opioid use disorder. It's as, as you're describing some of these different uses, you know, my mind's immediately being transported to Yemen, which is a, a bit of a, a different area, thinking about the consumption of cot of, um, and the, the molecule cathionine, which also acts as kind of euphoric social lubricant consumed in Muslim countries where you don't have the permission to consume alcohol. Um, and then also in Polynesia with the consumption of, um, of kava or of kava kava in, in, in these areas and also social lubricant. And that's kind of described as almost like a body high where you have full mental functionality for insomnia and pain. And so I'm wondering, you know, are there any parallels? Of course, cot is, is federally listed. You cannot purchase or use this, this particular plant in the United States, but kava you can and as far as i understand currently cot uh, or not cot sorry kratom <laughs> so many <laughs> different local names kratom you can purchase and use in the us so do, have you in your research noted any any parallels i know these are from very different plant families have different very different chemical classes involved but there's similar utilities in these cultures as this kind of relaxant euphoric social lubricant yeah Obviously, it's there's very different chemical classes as we you've already alluded to in many of these different plants, but the the end use is somewhat similar, um, and and we we do work with uh, collaborators here at the University of Florida on kava as well, um, and so we've we've done some studies with it. Interestingly enough, we have not done studies yet where we've combined kava and Tom, and, and that's of relevance because many of the kava bars um, are serving as one of their top selling items, a combination of Kratom uh, mm. and kava kava together. And there's actually uh, a marketed product out uh, in, in the market, public marketplace that combines those, uh, that root and leaf material uh, together in an energy drink. And so we don't really know how all of these things uh, relate to each other. And the interesting part, I think, is that the pharmacologies, although they're related, they're different. Um, Very different. We have, we have different systems that are being activated or inhibited um, that, are, that are resulting in the same sort of behavioral outcome, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so... It, it, it brings up just the complexity of the pharmacology that's associated because even when we talk about kava, um, you can talk about kava really being used as that sort of relaxant and social lubricant, decreasing stress. Um, but you don't hear people getting intoxicated from it. You don't hear people getting um, cardiovascular issues from it. You don't hear about a lot of harm associated with kava. Um, unfortunately, we do hear harm associated with uh, Kratom, and, it, and it's very interesting because as we've dug into trying to understand that, um, the initial thought was, well, it, it has opioid activity, so it should be looking like an opioid when people consume too much. In, in other words, we should see respiratory depression, uh, we should see some of these types of problems that you would see with a with a prescription opioid overdose or or something like fentanyl or, or 
illicitly heroin. Um, and, and the poison control data and the emergency department data don't really point or paint that sort of picture. We see very little respiratory depression in, in individuals that call poison control or end up in an emergency department because they've consumed too much and they are having some sort of reaction that um, obviously scares them and pushes them towards these types of instances. And that really looks more like a stimulant activity, which is contradictory to what we've talked about with this yeah. sort of increased dose giving you more of a euphoric or a, a um, relaxed and sleepy sedative effect. Um, we don't know if it's if it's mediated through adrenergic receptors, which is where the stimulants would be working, um, like cocaine or methamphetamine or the compounds found in, in cot. Um, and, and we don't know if it's a serotonergic component um, where the, the overdose of an adrenergic compound or the overdose of a serotonergic compound, which would cause serotonin syndrome, those behavioral outcomes are very similar. Hmm. And so we don't really understand what, what system is really taking over that harm issue, if you will, or where we start to see these adverse events. But we only really see it or we only hear about it when people are taking very large amounts of the material. So when they're consuming low amounts, uh, a lot of individuals say lower you know, the, the less is more, uh, where you, you just have a nice uh, small uh, tea or capsule or tablet and you get great effects for concentration and you get great effects for um, sort of this focus and stimulant, want to get up and do things and you have a good feeling about yourself. Um, whereas if we start to move or drift towards these higher doses, um, yes, you can start to get a more sedative effect. And then beyond that, uh, it seems there's there's more problems. And so you know, from the research realm, we've always tried to, to point towards consuming the lowest amount possible because we really don't know. We really don't know what what too much is. Um, and, and it speaks uh, really to the heart of the question is that you know, it's a very complex pharmacological mixture that Kratom has within its alkaloids uh, suite. And I call it a sort of a complex symphony orchestra because you've got all these different flavors and tones happening at the same time. And if you look at, uh, if you think of it as a giant mixing board for sound or a, a a big spice cabinet, you know, you've got a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and some of this, and a lot of that, and it, there's just very, very big complexity. And then how does all that play together? We don't really understand either, right? So some some things could be activating things, and other things could be inhibiting things or potentiating things. Um, and so we're we're really trying to understand all of that, and it it's just very very complex. <laughs> Yeah, so let's talk a bit about the the alkaloids. We know we have mitragynine, which is one of the predominant alkaloids. What else is in that mixture? Like, as you mentioned, there are some that may be acting in synergy. We don't know yet, but what other types of alkaloids are present? It's, it's a really important question. And one of the questions uh, that we really wanted to answer, because there's reports in the literature that show anywhere from 25 to almost 50 different alkaloids that have been characterized. Uh, from the plant. But what we wanted to know is what really is um, getting into the blood supply and what is really getting um, to the point that would cause some sort of response, whether it be beneficial or, or not. Um, and what we learned really is there's five, five key alkaloids um, that make it from a typical dose uh, or a typical consumption product uh, of of Kratom. And so the, that's mitragynin, of course, which is the major alkaloid. Um, and we found it to be the major alkaloid in most of the products that we see, but we also have found products that 
have it as one of the minor alkaloids and have other alkaloids at higher levels and we can talk about that later but let's stick to the alkaloids of interest for now um, there's a second alkaloid that was reported originally in the literature to be very minor it's called speciosialatine uh, it's actually the second most abundant one in most of the products that are found in the united states um, and speciosialatine works with opioid receptors as well uh, and so there's some effects that are coming from from that the the next two major alkaloids are very related to each other so one's called speciogynin uh, and one is called painanthine and painanthine is just a double bond reduction away from being speciogynin so they're almost hand in hand um, identical in their pharmacologies so you could almost almost consider them to be one uh, because their pharmacological profiles are, are identical. Uh, and it interacts heavily with serotonergic receptors. Uh, and so we know that um, this is an important piece and an important part of the pharmacology along with the opioid piece. Uh, and then there's another compound um, called coenanthidine, which is an alpha adrenergic uh, compound. And so we know that there's all three of these activities, and by the way, each one of these molecules has a predominant um, interaction with one of those receptors, so either serotonin, adrenergic, or opioid, but they all have that activity within their sort of uh, mixing board, if you will, individually. Um, and so when we look at all those together, it becomes very interesting because now you have to worry about um, metabolism and how's the body handling these and which ones are actually more important in terms of their longevity maybe not so much how much got into the blood but how much is staying in the blood how much is getting to the brain um, and then having those effects and so we see a lot of that one thing that i didn't mention is 7-hydroxymitragynin which is known uh, also to be one of the one of the key probably um, metabolites of mitragynin we're not we're still not a hundred percent sure that it exists in the plant itself uh, although it is found in many products many leaf dried leaf materials and again it could be the one of these oxidative products that i mentioned earlier that when it's separated from the tree uh, it starts to form we can't find any genes or any synthetic synthetic enzymes that would create that in the plant uh, specifically. So that's kind of interesting. But we, we assume that that is all what we see in the blood supply is almost all generated from metabolism of mitragynin in, in our body. And that can be metabolized in the intestine as well in the as in the liver because it's cytochrome P453A4 that does that conversion uh, primarily. So we see that and we know that that molecule is very selective. As I said, these other ones interact with all these different targets, but 7-hydroxymitragynin is very selective for opioid receptors. And so it may be contributing to the overall sort of pain relieving effects of the, of the material, um, but it also could be uh, in, over a long-term use or a long-term consumption, it could be why people are developing um, tolerance and problems as they increase their uses and prolong their uses of the of the products. Well, one thing that you mentioned was um, serotonin, and I'm wondering, are there any issues with interactions with SSRIs with people that are on antidepressants? Could there be any any contraindications if you're on those drugs and you also take kratom? Yeah, and I think it's one of the questions that we don't know the answer to fully. Um, obviously, there's a big interest in understanding what drugs would interact with um, Kratom or, or Kratom. Uh, and actually, I, th I think Kratom is an interesting term because the product is different in the U.S., and that's what we call it in the U.S. Uh, so I'm good with it's tomatoes, tomatoes to me. Uh, so... You know, I, I think I think that the drug interactions is a huge piece, and there's um, um, a wonderful uh, scientist named uh, Professor Mary Payne 
and Washington State University who's really been working on looking at human drug interactions with uh, Kratom. And what was the target of focus in the first trials was seeing the drugs that have shown up in autopsy reports um, co-committantly used with Kratom as, as, you know, potential causes of death, those combinations. Um, it's not to say that it happens in everyone, but uh, it, it is interesting that you point out SSRIs in particular because those, uh, as well as benzodiazepines, um, generally tend to show up uh, in, in deceased individuals' blood profiles. Um, is it causative? We don't know. Uh, it's definitely correlative, uh, but we don't know, uh, you know, what, what is a dangerous combination? Um, is it safe to have a small amount of Kratom with your SSRI? Is it totally something you should avoid? The pharmacist in me says totally avoid, um, you know, but the, but the researcher in me says we've got to find the real answer and understand where that is. But it's it's an excellent point. Yeah, I think one of the other interesting challenges with Kratom sales in the U.S. is, as you mentioned, you can have these highly, highly concentrated products where there's no real reporting over what concentrations of molecules people are consuming. And as scientists, we don't know still what's safe, what's not. Um, but then in addition to the issues with concentration and quality control, there are multiple chemotypes of Kratom. What can you tell us about chemotypes? First of all, kind of just break down what is a chemotype and how does this play into the story of Kratom? Sure. So this, this has been a fascinating story to start unfolding as we've, we've been studying the plant and we've We've been fortunate to have several people, uh, individuals, donate plants to um, our horticulture department. Uh, we have a dedicated couple of faculty that are really interested in understanding what's going on with the plant. What are the nutrient requirements? How can we manipulate alkaloid production based on what we feed the plant or how the plant is treated? Um, and a lot of this stems from what we see with cannabis. So I, I, I draw parallels because we see cannabis has these different chemotypes and hemp or industrial hemp that's used for fiber and ropes and paper production. Um, it has no THC in it, yet it's still cannabis sativa. Uh, and then we can get obviously through CBD um, products that would still be regulated as hemp because they're less than 0.3% um, THC. So this is another chemotype where we start to see increased levels of CBD. And then finally, you can get into some of the medical marijuana type uh, situations where you have high levels of THC present. So we're seeing, interestingly enough, and we didn't, we didn't ever expect this, but um, we see that variation in in the natural Mitragana speciosa. And in fact, we've seen it in trees growing right next to each other in Malaysia, uh, where we GPS identified, you know, which trees we were harvesting from, kept those leaves separate. And we see a variation in, in Mitragana content from anywhere around 0.7% weight weight of the leaf material all the way to about 40% uh, 43%, uh, uh, and I should say it's total alkaloid content. Um, and, and it's interesting because the original paper and most of the literature has propagated the original report that says mitragynin makes up 66% of the um, alkaloidal content. And that was done by a sampling of three trees. <laughs> uh, and that's sort of been dogma in the literature. Uh, that, that has to be overcome at some point. But we definitely see this difference and we can definitely see when mitragynin levels are low, we see higher levels of other alkaloids. So mitrophylin, one that we haven't really talked about, is another alkaloid that has a high concentration when mitragynin levels are low and vice versa. If we see high levels of mitragynin, we see very low levels of mitrophylin. Um, and so, all this variation takes place and we see some products that have 
uh, as the major alkaloids within them, uh, speciogynin, which is that serotonergic type compound, uh, or speciocialatin, which is a little more opioid-like in its activity. Uh, and so a lot of times these get translated into um, strains, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term, and they're, they're really chemotypes. So chemotype is different than a strain. Um, strains you would think of as being, uh, you know, sort of representative, reproducible. Um, this, this strain is what's used for this particular ailment. Um, whereas the, the chemotypes uh, actually are blended together. So in the particular growing area in, in Malaysia, which I have the most experience with, they'll harvest from all of these trees simultaneously. The farmer has no idea <laughs> that there's variation, right? They look at the tree, they know that it, it maybe volunteered itself uh, or they planted it themselves. Um, and they combine all of that together and you have this blended product that at the end of the day comes out usually with the majority of alkaloid being mitragynin. So um, they're also, uh, there's, there's a big thought based on the scientific literature and all of the anecdotal evidence that mitragynin is the, you know, principal psychoactive and active component. And so many of the blended products that we do see coming for import or export um, are targeted within that sort of, we want to see mitragynin as the major alkaloid and then we're not so worried about what else is in there. Yeah, and that can be perhaps a little bit dangerous if you're not controlling then for some of these other, like you said, serotonogic um, targeting molecules. Well, and this, this leads to another, I want to follow up on a comment you made earlier too about these real life trends at kava bars, for example, in Florida, where you have mixtures of kava kava with these kava lactone molecules, distinct type of molecules, very different from these alkaloids that you find in, in Kratom. Um, of these mixed products or people consuming both types of beverages, but there's no historical traditional use of these two together because they come from completely different parts of the world. Kava comes from, you know, Oceania, and as we've learned, you have Kratom from Southeast Asia. Um, so bringing those together is more of a modern Western innovation. And we really have no idea how safe that is. I guess one thing I'd like to get into is more on safety. I get so many questions about this from the public. Um, and I am not the expert on this. You are. So I'm hoping you have some wisdom you can share. But especially, you know, we, we covered SSRIs. I, I agree with you. I think that you should probably avoid this if you're on antidepressants in general. Just as I would say, if you're ex exploring psychedelic drugs, there are some that you definitely don't want to take in combination with SSRIs and especially any monoamine and you know oxidase inhibitors. Um, but when it comes to kratom, are there other big no-nos that have come about in your research or in Mary Payne's research of things to avoid? And what can you share about the safety of chronic versus acute use? Like oh, you try it once, how risky is it? If you're taking it every day, how risky is it? Or does it really come down to the form? I'm sorry, that's so many questions. I have a bad habit of doing that. But that's, that's kind of the space I'm trying to dig into. Like what are some real usable takeaways that our audience can, can learn from this? Yeah, so I, I mean, there is a lot to unpack there, but it's all good because I think we can build through that as as I try to address it. Um, first and foremost, I, I get lots of questions from the public as well, and I always explain to them that my test subjects are rats and mice, and so they don't talk to me and tell me what's going on. Um, and so we, we have really, um, you know, really objective measures that we can look at from that standpoint and not as subjective as what we hear from uh, human anecdotal evidence. And as we, as we are able to start exploring more uh, clinical trials and controlled settings, um, which now there's, there's a couple that have um, been in the books. Um, only one is published so far, but we're, we're, we're starting to see more and more come out. So we'll get an idea of what might be safe at least in an acute setting. Um, 
and what might be problematic, uh, again, in an acute setting. So this one-time dose or maybe a couple times dose or a week's worth. Um, and as, I've, as I said earlier, most of what individuals report to us when we talk to them or interview them is that less is more. So when they take less, they get a better benefit and they don't have issues with that um, in terms of, you know, side effects or problems or, or interactions from what they say. Uh, we don't have any scientific evidence to back any of that up. Um, but the, the real question and the real mystery out there right now is how much is too much in an acute setting? Um, if, if we talk on these different products that we mentioned, we have everything from, uh, you know, just crushed leaf material, uh, and if, if we want to go back to the alcohol example, I would say that crushed leaf material is like having a light beer. Um, it's going to give you the least exposure to the active ingredients as possible, particularly if you make uh, aqueous decoction from that or tea, uh, because water is not a very efficient extractor of these alkaloids, even when you add lemon juice or something like that, uh, which is how it's done in, in Southeast Asia. Um, and then we move into these very concentrated extracts that I would almost equate to like Bacardi 151 or something that's going to give you an incredible exposure in a very short amount of time. Um, and we don't know the safety of that. Uh, you know, there's, there's some, some that say that the natural leaf material sort of self-limits because at some point, your body, if you've ingested enough leaf material, your body's going to vomit uh, or reject or self-limit how much exposure you're going to get. Um, but if you're taking a concentrated extract, uh, you know, that, that can be consumed very quickly, uh, like a shot. Uh, and then if there's no effect in five minutes, somebody may consume another one to think that, oh, I should be getting an immediate effect. Uh, and this is where we start to look at problems happening. So that's the acute setting, but in the chronic setting, we have no idea. So, uh, you know, I hear about people that have now been on uh, Kratom products for 10 years um, with no issues. And then I hear about people who've been on it for a couple of years that are seeking treatment to get help to get off of it because they they can't seem to get off of it without having some sort of side effect um, that is withdrawal, that is alleviated by taking the product again. So, um, and I see that even talking with addiction physicians, uh, treatment physicians, where several years ago they they were seeing patients coming in self-medicating and and you know, using these to reduce the amount of prescription opioids or completely eliminate prescription opioids, and it was working really well. Um, and I think what we've started to learn is that individuals that are that are transitioning off um, may not be getting the, the pain relief over time chronically, and so they do develop some tolerance to Kratom, and they start to increase the dose and increase the dose and then when you start to get to large doses, and I've heard from people, so a typical dose is two to five grams of leaf material. I've been hearing people that are taking doses of 90 grams, um, which is, I, I think would cause someone that was inexperienced immediate, you know, vomiting and rejection. Uh, even in the clinical trial where they did two gram doses, they had two individuals out of eight that vomited. So. Um, you know, there's, there, there is some, something to be said for those that have had experience with the product over a long period of time, and how that develops, we have no idea. We've not even done chronic studies in animals to, to model or predict what that could look like in humans. Uh, so there's so much that we need to learn. There's so much more science that needs to be done in order to really say if these things are safe or not. And just to touch back on the, the combination of, of things, because we talked about um, opioids and people that have used these to sort of come down off of opioids or reduce their opioid intake. Um, 
we actually see that Kratom seems to um, affect the use of opioids in, in a reductive way in terms of consumption of those opioids. But pharmacologically, we don't know about that interaction. So is it actually making the less opioids more active <laughs> or is there some sort of play there? And then when people completely move themselves off of those opioids, they're not deriving any benefit from that opioid anymore. They're all on Kratom. And now is it, you know, do we need to keep taking more to get to that effect that we need to have? And level these really are all questions. So with opiates, one of the well-known side effects is, of course, constipation. It can be a really big problem for patients. Are there any known side effects with regular Kratom use? I mean, because they do seem to be acting on some similar targets. Like, do you, do you also see that among Kratom users? Yeah. So um, it's, it's interesting because uh, I'll touch on this. Some individuals that um, I've heard of that have started taking uh, Kratom for the first time, they talk about increased uh, flatulence. So they get a lot of gas. Um, and it's, we don't know what, what that could be, but we do think that there is some interaction with the gut microbiota, uh, and we think that there's some restructuring of gut microbiota with with kratom use, and some of that may be related to some of the effects that are seen in diabetes um, and normalization of blood sugar. But we don't have evidence, strong enough evidence, to to make any claims there yet. Um, but it, it is definitely something that's happening. Um, and constipation in long-term usage um, is definitely a, a problem. And I'll just say this. We, we started, we learned a new term by uh, Reddit mining. Um, and so we, we wanted to really answer a question because we had a couple of babies that were born um, at the University of Florida that were born in opiate withdrawal uh, or looked to be in neonatal abstinence syndrome. Uh, and uh, the mother's only drug supposedly or substance that they were using was, was Kratom. Uh, and so we really wanted to understand what's happening there. First, we wondered if their, their product was adulterated and we didn't see that uh, as one of the issues. Um, but we, we really wanted to get to the answer because we had uh, OBGYNs and then pediatricians coming to us trying to understand how we do this. So we really worked to try to change the intake of pregnant mothers um, into the hospital to see if they're taking an herbal product at all. Um, a lot of them are getting pregnant and then switching from illicit opioid use to Kratom, so they won't go into withdrawals. Uh, but we don't know what the consequence of Kratom use is on, on a, a baby. So we, we initiated yeah. a big study around this. Um, and so the, the long story short, uh, which I know is already too late, but uh, the, we learned this term Kratom baby or Kratom baby. Um, and it has nothing to do with a human baby. But apparently in Reddit, um, this is a term that's commonly used among chronic users of Kratom, uh, that when they finally are able to go to the bathroom and have a bowel movement, they call it a Kratom baby. So <laughs> so it's a very large bowel movement, like passing a baby, basically. Yeah, that's, that's what they equated to. And that, that was a surprise term for us because we were, we were trying to understand Kratom and babies. And as we were filtering through the mining, it, it became very evident that constipation um, after, you know, chronic use or, or long-term use becomes an, an issue. Now, I will say on the flip side of that, we've heard people with irritable bowel disease um, and Crohn's disease uh, and some other, um, you know, GI disorders that on very low doses, they're able to get relief from some of those some of those problems so it, it could be playing on on some of the targets like you mentioned it could be playing on the gut 
microflora, that there's, uh, again, just a complexity of what might be going on there overall. But again, it sounds like less is more. Uh, and the more and more that things are increased, the more um, that we start to push towards these side effects or these, these more harmful effects. Yeah. And so I guess one takeaway I'm hearing from this, and while admittedly we don't have all the data yet, but one main takeaway is avoid in pregnancy. Um, we don't know what the effects are going to be for children. You certainly don't want to have a baby that's born with an opiate-like addiction. Um, that heavy use can lead to side effects similar to opiates, with especially with regards to, to, to constipation that there are some risks for herb drug interactions, especially with um, drugs that work on similar targets. Um, so a lot of a lot of science still to be done. I'm really excited about the work that you're doing, that you're contributing to this field, Chris, because we need we need scientists like you that are really digging into something that people are using. I mean, this is a this is a reality of of many, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Americans, millions, how many, do we know how many use this right now? Um, it's important we understand the repercussions. Yeah, so this is a big question for us and we've we've tried to get at this through numbers of surveys um, and other researchers are doing the same. And there's, there's estimates on the very conservative end that there are around two to three million users of Kratom on a, on a regular basis across the country and that's easily the population of some states yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and then there's there's data that we've pulled uh, from sales of products that uh, also data that we've gotten um, from the American Kratom Association about how much material has been exported from Southeast Asia uh, and if we look at those and do some back of the napkin calculations or envelope calculations, those numbers can be easily upwards of 15 uh, to 20 million users. So, you know, it's a very significant thing. And the, the other issue is, um, even though we talked about harm and caution, uh, you know, the, the, the majority of people in the United States, I don't think even know what the word Kratom or Kratom is if they were to hear it. However, I think you probably would be able to get um, feedback from most individuals now on xylazine, which has, has major problems associated with it uh, in combination with opioids. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think it kind of speaks to the, the number of harmful events and the number of poison control center calls that we've seen um, have not escalated in comparison to the increase in sales and users of the product. Now, that's not to say that everything's safe and hunky-dory. Um, it's just to say that if it is consumed uh, in a very you know, conservative manner and in a very controlled manner, then there shouldn't be too much harm associated with it. But as we start to see some of these different products, some of these very increased chronic uses, um, that's where we can run into some issues. So all those take-home messages are, are spot on. Uh, so thank you for for bringing those up to a nice summary too. Thank you. This has been, I mean, just such an illuminating conversation and it has me scientifically curious to learn more um, about this plant because I think, uh, you know, I, I, I did focus a lot on the harm and risks, but there is great potential um, for development of, of novel therapies from this as well. And I think that's a really exciting area of emerging science. Um, um, with this plant as well. And I think we're out of time at this point, but um, is do you have any um, places we can send folks to learn more about your research, perhaps your um, your website? Yeah, so we, we have a, a website at the University of Florida. Um, if you just Google University of Florida or Florida College of Pharmacy um, and Kratom, uh, you should be able to find it. It's called a Kratom resources page. 
um, and the 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 URL string is long and crazy. Uh, I wish it was simple, but this is the bureaucracy of <laughs> university websites. So, <laughs> uh, but it, it can be found there. Um, and then uh, you know, actually, um, the National Institute on Drug Abuse has a very good uh, informational page. I think that is one of the most balanced in terms of benefits versus harm uh, and some of the questions that we know. Of course, FDA has a page. It's very much um, more pointed towards the harm and public protection, which is what the FDA is supposed to do. Uh, and then the DEA has a page as well, uh, just sort of still listed in the DEA as a chemical of concern. Um, and the WHO now has a, a page. Uh, so there's there's lots of resources um, that can be used and uh, hopefully, um, you know, they're balanced resources, uh, as I mentioned, uh, because there are several websites out there that touted as being the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then there are several websites out there that say, you know, it's, it's the deadliest thing that's uh, out there. So, you know, People be smart uh, and and use your 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 judgment wisely when you read these things. <laughs> Such a good point. Thanks, Chris. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It was great having you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in each and every week. It's been really great to bring this fifth season um, to you. More than 130,000 downloads on the show, and those numbers keep rising. So please share this and your other episodes from the show with your friends, with your family, with your colleagues. Um, you can find this and other episodes on our website at foodiepharmacology.com. We also have some great links on the website, uh, places to find fun merch, places to support the show by buying me a cup of joe. I could really use some coffee as a stimulant, you know, each day as I, as I consider our next episodes. Um, if you would like to give me feedback on um, potential guest ideas, you can also do that at the Nature's Pharmacy Substack, um, where I write and feature um, many of our episodes there. You can also head over to the Teach Ethnobotany um, YouTube channel where you can find the full video version of these episodes um, in case you'd like to have a little bit of an audio and visual combo. So thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.